All right, if you have your Bibles, now's the time. You can open them to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, and we are going to begin by reading verses 11 to 25 this morning. It says this, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Uel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Amen. Ah, during, sorry, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Many of you know how much I love to read books and how many books I read throughout a year. I like many types of books. I like history. I like theology. I like many of the classics. There's, there's really something about reading some of the, the classic works that have been written throughout time and that have really been used to change the world. Classics such as Dr. Seuss's Oh, the places you will go. Yes. Friends, this is a gem of a book marked by the doctor's typical energy and unexpected turns. Each page a new adventure in itself, poignant with truth and mixed with refreshing moments of humor. It's a true masterpiece. I'm not sure if all of you have read this because we live in a woefully illiterate age, But if you haven't read this, let me bring you into the wonder of this. This this masterpiece begins with these words, which really can be truly compared with the brilliant beginning lines of authors like Charles Dickens and Herman Melville and George Orwell. This masterpiece begins with these moving words. Congratulations. Today is your day. You're off to great places. You're off and away. Don't you feel that in your soul? There's more. 
There's more. He keeps pulling us into this world of wonder with these thoughtful reflections. He says, you have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. You're on your own, and you know what you know, and you are the guy who will decide where to go. Now, there are some theological concerns with his anthropology there. But you can't argue with the poetical brilliance that is found there. Then he continues to paint a bright picture of hope. He says, out there things can happen and frequently do to people as brainy and footsy as you. And when things start to happen, don't worry, don't stew, just go right along. You'll start happening too. Oh, the places you'll go, you'll be on your way, you'll be seeing great sights, you'll join the high flyers who soar to high heights. It's like T.D. Jake's preaching to us this morning. He, he's promising great things. He's, he's promising hope. He's promising a bright future. But then, then with such powerful literary foreshadowing, he acknowledged the reality of pain along the way. He says, wherever you fly, you'll be the best of the best. Wherever you go, you will top all the rest. But then he says, except when you don't, because sometimes you won't. I'm sorry to say so, but sadly it's true that bang-ups and hang-ups can happen to you. You can get all hung up in a prickly perch, and your gang will fly on. You'll be left in a lurch. Life is not always easy. He says you'll come down from the lurch with an unpleasant bump, and the chances are then that you'll be in a slump. Church, anybody feel like they're in a slump right now? He says, and when you're in a slump, you're not in for much fun. Unslumping yourself is not easily done. Listen to what he says next. He says, you'll come to a place where the streets are not marked. Some windows are lighted, but mostly they're dark. A place you could sprain both your elbow and shin. Do you dare to stay out? Do you dare to go in? Being in a slump is a hard and confusing place to be. He says, you can be so confused that you'll start into race down long giggled roads at a breaknecking pace and grind on for miles across weirdish wild space headed, I fear, to a most useless place. What is this useless place? He calls it the waiting place. The waiting place, the place where no one wants to be, he says, for people just waiting, waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the rain to go or the phone to ring or the snow to snow or, or waiting around for a yes or a no. Anyone feel like they're waiting for a yes or a no from the Lord? I'll just skip over the part about waiting to grow hair. That's not important. <laughs> he says, everyone is just waiting. Friends, according to Dr. Seuss, the waiting place is a bad, bad place to be. I think most of us would agree. No one wants to be in that place. In fact, on the very next page, he says, no, that's not for you. Somehow you'll escape all the waiting and staying. You'll find the bright places where boom bands are playing. Clearly... According to Dr. Seuss, we should want to avoid the waiting place at all costs. Just get out of it. But church, it is as easy as Dr. Seuss makes it sound, we must acknowledge that we cannot just move on from the waiting places that God has us in. 
We truly can't. We can't just stop this season of waiting. Waiting is, is hard. Oftentimes it, it is this life, waiting is unavoidable. If, if it was avoidable, all of us would just move on quickly from it. But in this life, we often wait because there is nothing to do but to wait. We can't change the circumstances entirely that we find ourselves in. We can't force the situation to change. We can, by God's grace, seek to be faithful in the circumstances, but often the pain of the situation will not change. Friends, there is a lot of waiting represented in this room today. Many of us have been waiting a long time. We're waiting for our marriage to change. We're waiting for God to give us a spouse. We're waiting for healing. We are waiting for a breakthrough in our career. We are waiting for our children to finally find clarity in life. We are waiting to escape mental illness. We are waiting for chronic pain to end. Maybe you're a student in high school and you are just waiting for for the next season of your life to begin. We're all waiting. And none of us like the waiting place very much. None of us want to be there very long, but yet here we are. Church family, today we need to talk about waiting. We need to talk about how God's ways are not our ways and his timing is not our timing. And we need to be honest with God about the pain and the frustration that we feel in our waiting. We, we can be honest with him, but in our honesty, we also need to consider how hopeful we can be because of the God who we learn here is active in our waiting. Friends, I honestly don't know even a half of the waiting that is happening in this room, the sorrow and the pain and the trials. But here's what we can all know together this morning. We can, no matter how much waiting we have done, no matter how much waiting we still will do, the one true and living God remembers us in our waiting. He remembers and he acts on our behalf. The main idea for our sermon this morning is simply this. Church, in times of waiting... God always remembers. In times of waiting, our God always remembers. And we have just two points. Number one, we often wait. Number two, God always remembers. Let's begin with the first point. Number one, we often wait. You and I do not live in a culture that likes to wait. (laughs) Waiting is not a popular Thing, but, but no matter how fast your interconnection, internet connection may be, no matter how instant your instant cart order may feel, no matter how crazy it is that just this week I ordered something at 9 p.m. on Friday night and it was at my house at 6 a.m. Saturday morning, no matter how fast it can be, waiting is unavoidable. As people, we often wait. And it may not be to wait for an Amazon package, but it will often be to wait for our heart's desire or for our earnest, long prayers to be answered. Amazon cannot hurry up the will of God. Amazon cannot give you the spouse that you have been praying for or take away your sickness or heal that relationship or give you the house that you've been praying for or the promotion that you are working on or the ministry that you long to be a part of. There are certain areas of life in this world that we simply cannot hurry along and sadly those areas are most often areas of suffering and pain and difficulty and trial. But as we wait, we must remember, church, that waiting is not uncommon for God's people. No, it's not uncommon at all. It is in this fallen and broken and sin-sick world. Waiting has been a constant experience of God's people from the very beginning. We're not alone in our waiting. Look at our text today. 
We already know that the Israelites have been in Egypt for how many years? 400 years. Think about that. 400 years is 20 generations. Generations and generations have lived and died in brutal slavery, waiting for deliverance. These men and women, they, they were born into slavery. They grew up into slavery. They had children in slavery. Their children had children in slavery, and they died in slavery. They lived their entire lives without even touching what they had prayed for from God for so long. Centuries of oppression of the worst kind. Their children are being hunted down. They are, they are living in oppression, under oppression. This is severe. This is pain in its worst form. And it is long. Think about Moses himself. These chapters, these first chapters in, in Exodus, they're very fast-paced as we read them. We are, we're moving very quickly, it seems, from one event to the next. But if you notice the detail of the verses in front of you, you realize that this reality is not fast-paced at all. Look at verse 11 of our text today. It says, one day when Moses had grown up. That could just be a throwaway sentence real quickly considered, but think about what it means. Think about how long it takes for a little baby to grow into a full man. In Acts chapter 7 in the New Testament, Stephen says in his speech that Moses, in the moment that we're studying here today, was 40 years old when these events happened. And then we learn that another 40 years happened until the burning bush in chapter 3. So from the moment that Moses' mother put him in a basket on the water, entrusting him to the care and direction of the Lord, 80 years have gone by. 80 years. I just turned 40 this past Monday. I can't imagine having spent my entire life in slavery, and I can't imagine looking forward to the same length of life being spent in slavery. This is crazy, but this is what Israel was enduring. They were waiting year after year after year after year with no change to their circumstances, none. And church, it's so important that we see together that sort of waiting is not uncommon in the Bible. It's actually very common. See, the problem is that we often read our Bibles while only looking for the high point, for the mountaintop experiences, the big moments of deliverance and salvation. And those are encouraging to us. They should be. But we often forget that there are thousands of years represented in this book of people waiting, longing for change in their life, but never fully experiencing it. Because of sin... This world is not as it should be, and so God's people will often wait. Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 12 were promised a son. They were promised a child of their own, which they longed for, but it wasn't until many, many, many years later that God gave them their heart's desire. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, Elizabeth, all godly women who longed for a child to be given, but they waited in their barrenness. They waited in their infertility. Jacob was mistreated by his uncle Laban for 14 years till he was given his heart's desire. Joseph was sold into slavery and then sat in a prison cell for years on end before God opened doors in his life. Nehemiah and Daniel, along with the people of God, in exile in Babylon for years. The, the psalmist regularly prays, oh Lord, how long? How long will you wait? 
Psalm 63, save me, oh my God, for the waters have, have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My, my throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Church, we will often wait, and it's, it's not a pleasant kind of waiting, it's unpleasant. There are nice kinds of waiting and there are bad kinds of waiting, right? There are certain kinds that I don't mind at all. When I go to a wedding and it's a nice reception and there's the cocktail hour before dinner, normally I hate waiting for dinner, not then, because there's bacon-wrapped scallops being walked around and there's these hors d'oeuvres and I could just Take your time with those pictures. I'll be here just eating all the hors d'oeuvres. I usually place myself by the door where they come out, and I just start picking them off as they come out. That's not a bad kind of waiting, but friends, that is not the kind of waiting described in our Bibles. Look, look at our text. This is not pleasant at all. It is severely unpleasant. There are so many words in our text that speak of the severity of the situation. Verse 11, we see the words burden and beating right away. That's suffering words. Verse 13, we see the word struggling. Verse, verse 14, we see the presence of fear in Moses because of enemies. Verse 15, we see Pharaoh wanting to kill Moses. Verse 16 to 17, these seven ladies are being driven away by cruel men. When, when Moses and Zipporah marry and have a son, they name him Gershom, because it means sojourner in a foreign land. To be a sojourner, it's not a good thing. It's not a place of rest. It's not a place where you can have peace. Verse 23 says that during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel, listen to this word, groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Friend, this is severe suffering. This is hard waiting. This is not easy. This is waiting with groaning and weeping and lamentation. Friends, this suffering is common among all God's people, not just in the Bible, but in our church today and in our lives every day. We're all waiting. Oftentimes we can feel alone in our waiting. Oftentimes we can begin to compare ourselves to other people and feel like our waiting is so much harder than other people's waiting. But listen, it's, it's good to acknowledge that we're all waiting together. Recently, my, my family and I were at the dentist, and we were waiting in the waiting room, and we did all of our appointments, and then we left, and I, I made the comment to my kids that my dentist waiting room was so much better when I was a kid than our waiting room today. When I was a kid, there were all kinds of magazines with those, those picture-finding things, highlight magazines, and there were games, and there were puzzles, and it was not a terrible experience. This waiting room has none of that, no magazines, and it's like daytime soap operas on the screen. It's just like, this is, this is a terrible experience. But as I was saying that to them, I was thinking about how like, we, can, we can compare ourselves to people and, and what waiting room God has given to them. Well, they have magazines. They have things to do. They have people to enjoy. I'm in this waiting room over here watching Days of Our Life over and over and over again. It's good for us to acknowledge that all of God's people wait, and it's painful. Waiting in a dentist's office, no matter how good it is, you're waiting for the dentist. <laughs> it's torturous. Church, what is it for you? What, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for your adult child to finally come to Jesus, to turn from their rebellious ways and to bend the knee? 
Are you waiting to be free from alcohol or drug addiction for yourself or for someone that you love? Are you, are you waiting to not go to sleep each night wondering if you're going to get the call in the middle of the night about the family member who might have overdosed? Are you waiting to be done with this season of singleness, thinking that you would have been married long ago? Why am I still here? Why do I still stand here? Are you waiting for your reputation to be restored? Maybe you've been slandered. Maybe you've been gossiped about. Maybe you've made mistakes and so people no longer respect you and you're just waiting for for your reputation to be restored. Are you waiting for financial stability but yet it continually avoids or eludes your family? Are you waiting for when we don't have any more horrific things in the news like we saw this week? Are you lamenting the violence all around us? Are you waiting? Are you waiting for a baby? Friends, according to God's word, there are few places as painful and as lonely as waiting for and not being given the child that you long to have. Are you waiting? Are you, are you waiting to be free from same-sex attraction? Done battling that and wanting to be free from it. Dear friends, in in this fallen world, we will often wait, and we will often wait a long time. We will feel forlorn, forgotten, and forsaken. We will feel invisible to the world around us, and we will even begin to feel invisible to God himself. The enemy of our souls, the serpent, will whisper to us that God does not hear, God does not see, God does not know, God does not care. But church, this is when we must allow God's precious, true, authoritative, inerrant word remind us of the unshakable truth that he is not a God who forgets. He is not a God who ignores the plight of his people. And that brings us to our second point. Point number two, God always remembers. Don't you hate it when a friend ghosts you? Text message? They don't respond, they ignore what you said. You spend time texting out this, these thoughts and these burdens and you're asking for support, you're asking for help and then there's, there's no response. It's the worst. It's even worse when you can look at your phone and say, I know you read it and you're still not responding to me. What's up with that? If I've ghosted you this month, I'm sorry. It's just been a busy, busy month. I will respond or just text me again. None of us like to be ghosted or ignored or forgotten, particularly when we are in need of help. But isn't it true that in times of waiting, it can feel like God himself is ghosting us? I don't mean wholly ghosting us. No, we, we can feel like he's forgotten us. He's ignoring us. We, we know he sees us, right? He's, he's God himself. He sees all things. He hears all things. We know that there's a, a red receipt on the text of our prayers. He's seen it, but yet there's no response. Why? God, where are you? Why haven't you responded? We can imagine the Israelite people have felt like God has ghosted them in the most severe way, 400 years 400 years, 20 generations. Did he block us? Did he unfriend us? Did he change his number? Where is he? But church, these verses, these first chapters of Exodus are intended to remind us very clearly this morning that though in our waiting it may feel like God has forgotten us, he's not forgotten his people. He will never, ever forget his people. He will always remember 
But the problem is that we can feel like he's forgotten us because we do not see his activity in bright and clear displays in our lives. The, the waiting, the, the darkness, we even sang about it this morning, it seems to, to blind us to his activity. The, the waiting does not come to an end, and so it naturally feels he must not love us anymore. This relationship must be over. But Christian, please hear this morning from God's word. Please hear, just because you do not see God's activity in your life, that does not mean that he is not still very active in your life. It does not mean that he has forgotten you in any way at all. We, we must not require visible dem demonstrations of his activity to believe that he is still near. No, God's word tells us again and again and again that at times when it feels like God is least present, that is often when he is most active. Often the, the moments when he feels most distant are when he is nearest to us and most powerfully and wisely working on our behalf. And we see it in this text today. Think about what we read last week. Moses' mother, by faith and humility, put her son Moses into a basket in order to protect him from Pharaoh. I am sure that that did not feel like God was active. God, how come you can't just answer my prayers right now by crushing Pharaoh? How come you can't just overturn this edict to kill all the firstborn sons? Why, don't you, why do I have to go through this process of, of trusting you by, by releasing what I want more than anything else in the world right now? There must have been such a, a tearing that happened in her heart and soul, but she believed that God was active even in that tearing, even in that loss, and we know that he was. Because consider what happens. I mean, verse 11 alone, one day when Moses had grown up, think about what that means. He grew up in Pharaoh's house. Again, in the New Testament, Stephen, in his speech in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, he says that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and deeds. Think about this. In God's divine wisdom and providence, he places Moses like a Trojan horse into the house of Pharaoh. Like a divine act of espionage, the future deliverer of God's people is planted into the very house of the enemy. Moses is taught by the enemy. He is fed by the enemy. He's protected by the enemy. We assume that he's even loved and cared for by the enemy. God is undermining Pharaoh right under his nose. He's toppling his kingdom from within. But you would not know it if you were to look at the situation from the outside. From the outside, it looks like this is only bad. Moses' mother is still without her son. She's still waiting. She's still weeping every night, crying herself to sleep. And even worse, Moses is then driven away from Egypt, hunted down by Pharaoh himself. It seems like the, the plan has failed. He's gone then for 40 years. It seems like everything is falling apart. But what appears to be the situation on the outside is emphatically not the situation within. God is doing something good for his people at all times. He will not forget. He always remembers. Verses 11 to 12 says that, that Moses went out to his people and looked on their burdens. Now, we don't know, we don't know how Moses learned to identify with his Hebrew people. We don't know if this was God revealing truth to him or, or if Pharaoh's daughter had allowed Moses' mother to remain connected to her son and if Moses' mother, as a faithful woman of, of God, was discipling her child to know his godly heritage. We don't know, but what we do know 
is that despite 40 years in the home of the most powerful man in the world, God instilled a different identity in Moses, and he eventually acted on it. Verse 12 says that Moses saw a Hebrew, one of his own people, being beaten by an Egyptian. And so what did Moses do? Well, he rose and he defended his brother. Now, what he does here is not good. This is murder. No, no matter how you cut it, it's, it's a bad thing that he does. He does not handle the situation rightly. It's a picture to us of how imperfect Moses is. His leadership gifting is there, but it's not sanctified by God in the wilderness yet. But what we do see here is that there is a God-instilled burden within Moses to be a leader, to be a protector. That leadership instinct, it needs to grow. It needs to be sanctified, but it's from God. God put it there, and we see it again when he flees to Midian in verse 17, when these shepherds try to drive these seven ladies away from the well of water, what does Moses do? It says he, he stands up against that, that abuse of power. He, 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 he stands up and, he, and he, he pushes them away and he helps the ladies to get water. That phrase that he, he stood up, it speaks of, of godly instincts in him to protect and to stand up for those who are oppressed. It speaks even in this season of waiting of how, how God was equipping him to stand up ultimately to Pharaoh. Church, it speaks of God's heart to stand up for his people. God is not ghosting Israel. He is at work even in the unseen ways. Pharaoh finds out about Moses killing this Egyptian and so he seeks to kill Moses. It's the death penalty for the crime he committed. But Moses flees. And where did he go? He goes to the land of Midian. Midian is a descendant of Abraham, and so that immediately connects us back into the Abrahamic covenant. Midian is also where we think the Mount, Mount Sinai was located, which will play a significant part in the story later on. But even more than Midian, we see that Moses, when he gets there after a long journey, sits down by a well in verse 15. That language should pop. That, that should catch our attention. Because back in Genesis, it was often at a well after a long journey that God acted on behalf of his people. Wells are, are signs of life and security, but they're also a place in Genesis chapter 24, Genesis chapter 29, where God provides wives for Isaac and for Jacob and thereby ensures that the line of Abraham will continue, the people will grow. So, so to sit down by a well here is significant and and we see immediately that similar things begin to happen. God provides a wife for Moses. Friends, these are all whispers of God's providence in our lives. They're all whispers of his presence. They're whispers that in our waiting, even while Moses has been excluded from his Hebrew people and is being chased by his adoptive people, he is alone, he is waiting, he seems lost, but God is whispering, I'm here. I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. I've not forgotten you. I've not forgotten my covenant. I am working on your behalf even as you feel like you're in the waiting room of life. Sometimes God's activity in our lives is veiled. It seems hidden. It seems dark. But that does not mean that he is not present. He is always present and he is always active. Look with me now at verses 23 to 25, which I almost didn't read earlier, which would have been a real shame because it's the highlight of the text. It says, during these many days, during these many days, it's been a long time, 
Moses hasn't been seen for 80 years. During these many days, the, the king of Egypt, we don't know whether that was the same Pharaoh or a different Pharaoh. Either way, it doesn't matter. The king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. They prayed to the living God. Their cry for rescue from slavery, it says, came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Church, our God always remembers we are called to pray, not, not because God forgets where we are or what's going on, but because he wants us to cry out to him and to express our confidence in his word and in his promises. When it says that he remembered his covenant, it, it doesn't mean that he had forgotten for 400 years and then his memory was jogged. He said, oh yeah, that whole thing, let me get back to that. That word remembered means that he chose in this moment to honor it and to be faithful to it in a particular way. His covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The time had come to prove himself faithful and more powerful than Pharaoh. The people of Israel had continued to cry and to pray and to, to look to him. They, they prayed, they, they groaned. Christians, sometimes your prayer will be nothing more than a groan, but it's honoring to God because it's a faith-filled groan. But because of his great mercy and grace, he hears those groans. He receives those groans and he responds to those groans. Look at these words. It says that their cry for rescue came up to God. The way is open. He wants to be prayed to. He invites us to speak. It says that he heard. He's paying attention. It says that he remembered or, or honored his covenant. It says that he, I love this, he saw the people of Israel. That's a particular seeing. It's not just like his mindfulness or awareness of them. He saw them in the situation and he knew. Do you feel unseen by God? Do you feel like he does not know about your situation? Friend, he sees his people. He sees and he knows where you are at. He sees you in the waiting room of life. He sees the pain. He sees the sorrow. He sees and he knows. Some of you are carrying a burden. Some of you are carrying a grief. Some of you are carrying a pain which you have never spoken to anyone else. Something happened to you and nobody else knows about it. You, you, you can't even speak of it. God sees. God knows. God is going to work on your behalf. You are not alone. You are not unseen. He sees, knows, and he is going to work even despite that pain. This is glorious news. Verse 23 to 25, they are the writer's way of coming to each of us in our waiting room. Oftentimes when we're in our waiting room, because we're not heading to anything pleasant, we have our head in our hands. We're waiting, and we don't want the dentist to come out. We don't want that test to be run. But this is the writer coming to us, and he's lifting our eyes up out of our hands in the waiting room. And he's saying, look with me at the God who remembers, at the God who sees, and the God who knows. He is saying, look with me at the God who now, at this point in the story, takes center stage, not Moses at all. And he proves himself faithful to his people. He says, look with me at the God who is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God and whose words cannot be shaken. In our waiting, God always remembers. He always remembers 
numbers. The, the writer invites us to look to this God, Yahweh, who hears, who sees, and who knows our suffering and remembers his covenant to his people. And listen, church, as Christians here today, we are invited by this reader to not just look at this text, but to look to God who sent his son into this world to fulfill his covenant in the ultimate way. God sent his son, Jesus, as a little baby into the household of his enemy, into the darkness of this world, like a Trojan horse, like a divine act of espionage. He, he came into the darkness to live for us, to die for us, and to redeem us. Jesus came, the son of God, became man, and dwelt among us, and what did he do? He waited with us. He could have come and he could have conquered sin and death in a single day, but he didn't, no. He lived among us for 33 years, waiting patiently day by day with, with weak and frail people all around him. He waited patiently. He walked the road steadily towards the cross. When he was on that cross, he could have in a moment called a host of angels to come and take him down from that cross. But he waited hour after hour after hour as life seeped from his body. He died. He didn't have to die, but he did. And then he laid lifeless in the tomb, waiting for the spirit to resurrect him from the grave. Friends, this is a savior. This is a redeemer who knows what it is to wait. Hebrews chapter four says that he is a, a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Now he was tempted in every way as we are. He knows what it is to wait and so we can come to him to find grace and mercy to help in time of need. He is the ultimate demonstration that God has heard our cry. God has remembered his covenant. God sees and knows his people so that anyone Anyone today who comes to him and believes in him, though life may feel like a waiting room, they can know that he is with them in that place and that he will always remember to work on their behalf. And as we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, how he's always at work in the waiting room. He's always at work in the wilderness, making us into who he wants us to be. In the midst of our waiting, God always remembers Dr. Seuss says that we get out of the waiting room by looking to ourselves and making decisions for ourselves. The back of the book says this book is 98 and three quarters percent guaranteed to inspire. The rest is up to you, friends. It's not up to us. It's up to our faithful God who loves us and has given himself for us. Amen? Please stand with me as I pray.